Please turn to Matthew 13. Before we jump into the message, I want to thank you for your patience during all the construction and movement that's going on right now. As you can see, there's big piles of dirt and holes and um, a big mess outside. So if y'all can help keep the kids out of there, we don't want anyone getting hurt. Also, we got some classrooms back here that are under construction and we put tape over the doors and everything. So um, it's exciting that we're getting to finally see uh, actual movement after months of behind the scenes movement. Uh, it's good because we need space for our kids. And so we're very thankful, and I appreciate y'all's patience in it. Again, turn to Matthew 13. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for our time this morning. I, I'm thankful that by design you've made it so that your people gather, at least weekly, uh, for the sake of as as one, with one voice, one in Christ, proclaiming your goodness. I'm thankful that we get to gather and have a time that is largely uninterrupted for the sake of um, sitting in awe and wonder of your holiness. Lord, already this morning we have uh, made some very large proclamations that you are God alone, uh, that you're seated on your throne we have proclaimed that uh, if you say go, we will. You have we have proclaimed in song that if, if it's necessary to wait on something, that we will do so humbly and patiently. Uh, we have proclaimed that you are majestic, that you are king of kings. Lord, my prayer is that already, before we even dive into the text, that as a body, we are understanding that our God is holy, Lord, guide us in that this morning. Equip us with greater understanding. Make it so that our eyes can see. Make it so that our ears can hear. We will proclaim the gospel this morning from the word, but we can't get it without you. We can't understand it without you. I would also want to pray for Steve Lawson over at Grace this morning. Over the last few weeks, he's been dealing with and working through some of the same biblical uh, truths that we have as he's in Romans 9 and 10, and I pray that you would continue to bless him in his preaching, that his body of believers over there, that that, that flock would be enjoying their God because Steve is preaching faithfully. I pray that you are allowing them to, to grow in their understanding of who you are so that they might in a greater way see your holiness and then in turn live a life for your glory. Lord, my prayer for us this morning is that, that we would uh, persevere in a message that's hard, that we would see what you tell us to proclaim, and that we would not um, shy away from it, but that we would proclaim it, that we would know the realities of uh, the world, that we would know that we live in a world that is uh, being sanctified, but is otherwise broken and in desperate need of a Savior. Lord, help us not to set ourselves against you by ignoring your word this morning. We love you. We want to be salty. We want to be bright. We want to be aromatic. We want to be obedient to your word. Help us to persevere in it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. In Matthew 13 this morning, we're going to be focusing specifically on the purpose of the parables. Last week, we looked at uh, the parable of the sower. And 
Um, Jesus, in the parable of the sower, what happens is a crowd gathers around, and Jesus gets in a boat so that he can address more people. So that's our setting. I want you to know that our setting is Jesus making movement to be able to address more people with a message. Now look at Matthew 13, verses 10 through 17. The message that he just shared was the parable of the sower, and he was, he was explaining the mysterious dynamics of evangelism to this crowd that he wanted to make sure that he could address a large number of them. And then in verse 10, the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear but never understand, you will indeed see but never perceive, for this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. The explanation of the parables and why we use parables is hard. And I'm asking you before we even really dig in to make the effort this morning, because this is a hard piece of text. Last week, it was necessary for us to focus largely on the parable of the sower so that we might better understand the dynamics between two things that seem like they don't go together, but they do. The two things that we need to understand the dynamics between are election and evangelism. To some of you sitting here, election sort of a bad word. To some of you sitting here, evangelism is very confusing. Is it wrong? Is it right? What are we doing? And I want us to see that these two things are not separate. So we looked at the parable of the sower last week. The reason for this is that when you mention evangelism to a congregation that is largely reformed or reforming, that is a congregation that does not reject the doctrine of election, there tends to be confusion. That nasty question comes up. Remember that question from last week? If God's going to save who God's going to save, then what's the point in evangelism? We asked a similar question when we were concerning prayer. If God's going to do what God's going to do, what's the point in praying? And so this question comes up, and last week we actually called the kind of thinking into question, why would we even ask that? And in a like manner, those who are burdened for evangelism and encouraged to share the gospel have a tendency toward confusion when it comes to election. So our conclusion last week was that when you have two truths that sit side by side in the Scriptures, and you have understanding of one of them over the other one, like I understand this more than I do this, it's not okay to dismiss the one that you understand less just because you understand this one more. It's not okay to discard either of them. And this isn't the case only with election and evangelism. These things happen throughout Scripture. You may also struggle with the concept of faith and works. 
Well, which is it? Is it faith or works? The answer is yes. Just because you like the tangibility, that's got to be a word, of works, and I can see what I'm doing, that doesn't mean you dismiss the need for faith. Or because you love the idea of, of faith in your Lord and, and, and you're saved by faith, that doesn't mean you dismiss the need for good works to show that you have faith. So election and evangelism are kind of like faith and works, or maybe it's uh, mercy and justice or boldness and gentleness. None of this is to be discarded because as we know, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and we need it desperately. Don't discard any part of it. Our need is to grow in our understanding and enlarge our paradigm to include both truths. God is sovereign in election, and man is responsible for his sin. I realized this week, as I was thinking through this, that according to Romans 12, you're being worldly if you discard either of these truths. That might hit some of you funny. You're being worldly if you discard either of these truths. The reason is this. Romans 12 states that we're not to be conformed to the world. Don't be conformed to the world. That's not your design in Christ. But rather, be transformed by the renewal of our minds. My hope is that in studying this, we will be transformed by the renewal of our minds. So if we would rather discard one of God's breathed out truths than be transformed by the renewal of our minds then we're being conformed to the world. To dismiss any part of God's word is to be worldly. And worldliness is not a good way to reach the world with the gospel, which we saw last week as our charge. Go and make disciples. Another thing that we saw last week and we'll continue to look at this week is the sometimes troubling and difficult dynamics of evangelism. We plant, we water, we sow seed, but it is only God who gives the growth. Or to say it another way, we can sow the seed of the gospel and then water that seed through God-centered conversations and God-centered actions, but it is still only God who saves. So there's no part in the process where we can stop being dependent upon God. So not only can we not cause growth, but the sowing itself is often difficult. Have you ever had difficulty in sowing the seed of the gospel? If you've ever sown the seed of the gospel, you've likely run into difficulty because according to our word, that's the norm. We considered the soils in the parable of the sower as possible conditions of the soul of an individual who is hearing the gospel. Some cannot understand it. Some cannot persevere in it. Some are led astray by the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. It's hard work. But some others. Some hear it and receive it and persevere in it for the glory of God, regardless of the hardship that may arise on account of the word. Some believe by hearing what you share with them. Do you, do you hear that? Some believe by hearing what you share with them. And what they do is they take that message that you shared with them and they go and share it with other people that they may hear and believe. That's a sweet picture. It's a divinely beautiful thing when a sinner repents from a life that is not God-honoring and humbly and obediently follows Jesus, their Savior and their treasure. So we've been in John for the last eight years, and having been thoroughly evangelized in the book of John, I really feel like Crosspoint, hear this, I feel like Crosspoint is very equipped for evangelism. 
And I don't want us to opt out because God doesn't give us an option to opt out. I feel that we are very equipped for evangelism in large part because we're equipped for worship. Again, back into Matthew 13, verse 10. Again, see this brief background that a crowd has gathered around. And now that crowd is being addressed by Jesus. And Jesus gets into, they're on a a shore. And Jesus gets into a boat and moves back in the water for the purpose of addressing more people. He wants to make sure everybody can hear what he's about to say. It's like Jesus saying, "Um, I need a microphone. I'm not just going to yell. Give me a mic. I want to make sure everybody hears what is about to be said. Look at verse 10. Then the disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? The disciples are a little confused, as I am when I read through this the first time. They're confused as to why Jesus has chosen to address the crowd using parables. The confusion was probably along the lines of, Jesus, if you want them to understand, then why would you not speak to them plainly? without the use of a parable? And Jesus kindly answers in the following verses, 11 through 15. He answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from from the one who has not, namely this crowd I just addressed, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive, for this people's heart has grown dull. With their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and understand, and hear with their ears and understand with their heart, and turn and I would heal them. I wanted to make sure that they wouldn't hear it because otherwise they would turn and I would heal them. This is, this is hard. To me, this is a very, very hard piece of Scripture. Now, Jesus just explained what's going on. Now, usually when someone explains something, I expect to be able to understand it more. Isn't that the way it is with you? You explain something or something's explained to you, you're thinking, oh, okay, I get it. I don't get that immediately. I'm like, what? how about another explanation? Maybe say it louder. I don't really know. But that's hard. So when someone explains something, I expect to be able to understand it more. But even the explanation that Jesus gives is a bit puzzling, isn't it? We're going to have to take a closer look. I urge you to climb into this text. Don't check out at any point. Every detail is important. See that Jesus, Jesus, the Alpha teacher, there's not a better one, has just addressed a large crowd, and he's explaining the mysterious dynamics of evangelism to a crowd that will largely, if not completely, reject the gospel. Do you see what just happened here? Jesus, the greatest teacher to walk the face of the earth, just addressed a crowd explaining the mysterious dynamics of the gospel and evangelism to a crowd that's going to reject the gospel, and ultimately not persevere and move forward in evangelism. The disciples are going to Jesus, and they're saying, Jesus, we heard you explaining to the crowd the mysterious dynamics of what happens when you share the gospel. Yet, Jesus, you explained the mystery mysteriously. 
Why did you explain the mystery mysteriously? Because explaining the mystery mysteriously seems to make it more mysterious, does it not? Why did you do that, Jesus? And to clear up any confusion, Jesus responds, I shared it that way so that they wouldn't understand. Jesus, I still have more questions. That's hard. I shared it that way so that they wouldn't understand. If you were one of the 12, what would your response be at this point? At this point, I would be thinking, you're Jesus. Why did you, of all people, waste your time on an evangelistic endeavor that's apparently unfruitful? You're Jesus. In our context, that would be like Jesus leading a revival and making sure with a particular crowd to share the gospel in a way that the crowd would not understand it. It's really hard to make sense of. So what Jesus does is he explains what he is doing. He explains why he is using a parable. He explains why he's addressing the crowd in this way by referring to Isaiah 6. Please turn to Isaiah 6. Scripture proves Scripture. Scripture explains Scripture. Jesus knew the Scriptures, obviously. So when asked why Jesus shares the gospel in a certain way, Jesus points to Isaiah 6. Jesus says, do you want to know why? Look at Isaiah 6. He's saying that he spoke to the crowd the way he did so that a prophecy that Isaiah has made would be fulfilled. Read Isaiah 6 with me. In the year that King Uzziah died... Climb into this. There's some of the most beautiful imagery you will ever encounter in this chapter. Climb in. Observe, 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 observe. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings with two He covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah said, Woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You hear Isaiah essentially saying, I've never seen my condition more clearly than when I was in the presence of the holy God. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. You see Isaiah saying, I see your holiness. 
I, I understand my place now, and if, if you, the one who is infinite in holiness, have a message, I want to proclaim it. Here am I. Send me. There's an eagerness here that is right in response to God's holiness. God said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then Isaiah said, How long, O Lord? That sounds horribly difficult and futile. How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people. And the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. We can't understand evangelism. We can't understand election. We can't understand why Jesus chose to use parables without first understanding the rich beauty that is Isaiah 6. We have to climb into this. Particularly, we need to see the context that Isaiah was sent from. Jesus is purposefully citing Isaiah, and we need to see this context that Isaiah was sent from. What happened before being given this very difficult message to proclaim? Well, what happened was Isaiah found himself wrapped up in a vision where, in fact, he saw the Lord. And this vision occurred in the, in the year King Uzziah died. That first verse, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. These first four verses in Isaiah 6 are filled with a rich explanation of what I want us to marvel at this morning. These four verses are filled with a rich, a rich explanation of the holiness of God. I'll just, I'll, I'll give you the, the spoiler alert. This is the, the punchline. If you are not overwhelmed with the holiness of God, you're not going to be very fruitful in evangelism. You're not going to persevere in evangelism when it's hard. You're going to jeopardize the actual message and the seed. If you are not in awe and wonder of the unmatched holiness of God, just in the first verse, we see a handful of things. First, God is alive. To some of you, that may not even be, it may not even seem worth noting. But King Uzziah, like all other kings before him and after him, has just died. But God is alive. There's a difference. There was never a time that God wasn't, and there will never be a time that God isn't. Many claim he is dead. That made the cover of Time Magazine one time. A guy claimed, I've got, I figured it out, God's dead. And that made the cover of Time Magazine. Many claim he's unknowable. Many claim that God is distant and aloof. But here, we see that he is very much alive and making himself known. For the sake of context, I want you to climb into this and see what's going on as King Uzziah has died. Consider that 120 years from now, every king, every president, and every leader of every country will be completely new. 
120 years from now, there's not going to be a guy saying, I've been doing this for 230 years. And in fact, they have not yet been born. And every person that's on the earth now will be dead. Meaning that everyone that those leaders will lead has also not yet been born. Just take that in for a minute so that we can see that our time here is fleeting. Our time here is fleeting. God aims for us to use it in a way that is glorifying to Him because His glory is unending. Don't use your time in a way that does not honor God because it's God's honor that goes on forever. That's why He would use us as vessels to be poured out so that others might see how great He is. Because while we will all not be here in 120 years and all this will be different, God is still alive. Death is a certainty for each of us, but not for our God. We put our hope in Him because He's above death, and His Son conquered death. So for those who are in Christ, death has no sting. What I want you to see is that for Isaiah to see and know that God is alive is for Isaiah to begin to really understand God's holiness. He is a living God. He's not just a thought that we conjured up. He's not just uh, sort of an entity that we put the label of God on. He's very much alive. And for Isaiah to begin to see this is for Isaiah to begin to understand the holiness of God. <coughs> Upon witnessing the death of their earthly king, King Uzziah, God's glory breaks through in his aliveness, which is an expression of his holiness. If you're taking notes, which all of you should be, write down, glory is a display of holiness. It's very important. Glory is a display of holiness. You don't have to turn there, but listen. Leviticus 10.3 says, God states, I will show myself holy to those who are near me, and I will reveal my glory before all people. Glory is is a display of holiness. So when we're talking about this dynamic between holiness and glory, be careful that you're not just using church words in a flippant manner. We need to understand what we're talking about here. One pastor put it like this, when God shows himself to be holy like he did with Isaiah, like he does for his children, what we see is glory. The holiness of God, like the collective holiness of God, is all of his glory, most of which we do not yet see, but we eagerly anticipate when we can. But the glory of God is his revealed holiness. So one who sees the glory of God does so by God revealing part of his holiness. If you say, I've, I've seen the glory of our Lord, that means that God has revealed part of his holiness. And when you glorify God, or put God's glory on display in your life, you do so by living or speaking in a manner that is holy because it shows others that there is no one like your God. He is holy, and what he does with his children is he sets them apart. That's what it means to be holy, set apart like himself so that you can see more of him, not me, not you, him. That's what he does. He is holy. What do we see next? Sitting upon a throne. God is seated on a throne. This is a picture of sovereignty. He is the king of kings. Some proclaim that God has just set this whole thing in motion and kind of backed off, not really involved anymore and has little to do with what's going on on earth. But here, we see that he's seated on his throne and very much in control. 
So up to this point, just in the first half of the first verse, you need to see God's holiness by seeing that he is alive and he is seated on his sovereign throne. It goes on. He is high and lifted up. So now we need to see he's not equal to to anyone because he's above everyone. If you want to see him, if you want to see God's holiness, you must humbly lift up your eyes to do so, and he must very lovingly grant that you would have eyes to see. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Our God is majestic in splendor. He isn't simply awe-inspiring, but he inspires awe in such a way that it's like an involuntary response. I can't help but being filled with God's awe if, in fact, my eyes have been opened to see his holiness. That's what's going on for Isaiah right here. If you have eyes to see such beauty, you will be filled with awe, just like Isaiah was. God's beauty is overwhelming. I want to make sure we understand this. I was talking to someone this week about where did, he, he was asking or making a comment on where God drags us to. At John six forty four, no one comes to the Father unless God draws you, and the word is drags you. And this is the point that he drags us to, to be able to see him, to be able to keep seeing him. It's not just he drags us kicking and screaming into heaven while we are totally rejecting him the whole time, at some point you look at him and you are overwhelmed by God's beauty. God's beauty is overwhelming. He reveals his glory by showing you, I'm holy. Take this in. God is holy. We see his glory by seeing his holiness. Look at verse 2. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. Has anyone ever heard the wings of a dragon when they flap? I haven't either. (laughs) But I thought that's probably what it would be like, these six wings on these seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. These are not chubby-winged babies. These are powerful creatures, seraphim. These are creatures who are designed to dwell in the presence of God, and God has equipped them to dwell rightly. Cover your face, cover your feet. They dwell in the presence of God. These are creatures who do not struggle with sin like you and I do. And even then, with four of their six wings, they cover their face, and they cover their feet out of respect and reverence for the holy God in whose presence they dwell humbly. Look at verse 3. And one of these seraphim, these amazing divine creatures, called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. You hear one of these seraphim say, Holy, 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 and the ground shakes because of his, his response to who God is. They don't just fly around as though to be a spectacle. They sing with a voice that shakes the foundation. Remember, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's pretty key in evangelism. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
So these seraphim have hearts, and they're filled with awe and wonder, and their hearts overflow with the proclamation of holiness. They have seen the glory of God as God reveals His holiness. And in a right response, they proclaim their evangelistic message. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. So God's glory is not just contained to the place of Isaiah's vision, but it overflows into all the earth. The earth is full of God's glory because God is making His holiness to be known and felt throughout the earth. Just consider looking back on your last week. This last week, have you been overwhelmed with God's holiness? Have you considered God's holiness? Have you heard someone mention God's holiness? God fills the earth with His glory by showing His holiness. So all of this is what Isaiah is seeing Isaiah is seeing this marvel, this wonder, this amazing picture of God high above, seated on his throne, very much alive, very much in control. He's the one who's seated while these seraphim are standing or flying, singing holy, holy, holy. It's a beautiful picture of worship. It's a beautiful picture of seeing truly how holy God is. And look at Isaiah's response. Verse 5. Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is a proper response when one has seen the King. What I want you to see is God doesn't soften it. God doesn't say, whoa, 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 hold on, seraphim, seraphim, keep it down. I say, what's all this woe is me stuff? Why, woe is me, what's the deal, man? God doesn't do that because it's an appropriate response. Woe is me. I don't belong in your presence. Something is amiss. The presence of God is so overwhelming that it seems that my very life should be demanded of me. I am unclean, unholy, and I dwell in the midst of a people who are unclean and unholy. Think back to the message we just heard in John where Peter is on the seashore with Jesus and Jesus has made a fish breakfast. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Because God is holy, 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 and we are unholy, unholy, unholy. When you share the gospel with someone, this is the kind of response you're looking for. Woe is me. It's not likely you're going to share the gospel and someone's going to say, woe is me. It's likely going to come in the form of, I'm worse than I thought. God's holiness is bigger than I realized. I need help. I need a savior. I need something to happen or this is not going to turn out well. That's an expression of woe is me. Again, we need clarity in evangelism because so much is being called evangelism that's not evangelism. If someone is explaining life in Christ and the holiness of God and they start with, all you have to do is, that doesn't add up. Y'all know the standard process, heads down, eyes closed, all of you just, uh, no, one, no one peeking. All you have to do is repeat after me. I see you in the back. I see you in the shirt. I see you on the side. We've seen that. 
But that process can be so minimized when something so huge is going on. Just so you know, my journey of faith began by that process. Just so you know. When I was eight years old, it was that, and my journey of faith began. But in those processes, it is so easy to very much minimize something huge that is going on because we say, all you have to do is, don't feel bad. All you have to do is this. No, I want you to feel, woe is me. Don't minimize what God is doing when he is revealing his holiness to lost sinners. Don't minimize what God is doing when he is revealing his holiness to lost sinners. Let it sink in. So when you share the gospel with someone, start with holiness. Start with the holiness of God. And at some point, you hope that the sinner says, Woe is me. This is what Isaiah saw. Hebrews 12 states it like this. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Holiness is very important when it comes to seeing the Lord because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So strive for holiness so that as you are holy, set apart, different, people can look at your life and see God. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You ever thought about what that really means? Be holy as God is holy so that others can gaze upon his glory by seeing that he is holy. So there was no arrogance on behalf of Isaiah at this point. When he says, woe is me, there's not arrogance. It's been peeled away. There was no sense of entitlement. There was no announcement of his presence as though God were lucky to have him as a guest. Rather, Isaiah saw his lostness. Isaiah saw his uncleanness because Isaiah saw God's holiness. I believe that if nothing else happened at this point, we would not have the rest of the book of Isaiah. I believe at this point when he's wrapped up in this vision and he sees the Lord and the holiness is overwhelming and he sees his uncleanness and he says, woe is me. I believe that if nothing else happened here, we would not have the rest of Isaiah's prophecy. If something outside of Isaiah doesn't happen right now, I believe that his woe will lead to his death. I believe that he will indeed die in the presence of a holy God if something doesn't happen. He needs something from God. His guilt is too great. Look at verses 6 through 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. See, verse 7 explains verse 6. This is sweet. Don't miss this. By God's command, Isaiah's guilt is taken away. By God's command, Isaiah's sin is atoned for. This is the gospel. This is what Christ has achieved for God's children. And the psalmist got it right in Psalm 2511 when he said, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. For the sake of how holy you are and how I'm supposed to live in a way that shows your holiness, for your name's sake, pardon my guilt, for my guilt is great. 
When in the presence of a holy God, do you see the greatness of your guilt? Or do you feel entitled? When in the presence of a holy God, do you see the greatness of your guilt? Joyfully, do you further see God making a way for your guilt to be reckoned with? God is perfectly just, so he can't just sweep your guilt under the rug and ignore it as though it never happened. That's why he sent his son. Atonement is a reparation for a wrong. We have wronged God, and our atonement is Christ that should humble you. Christ makes us right with God. Christ made Isaiah right with God. So here Isaiah stands in the presence of a holy God. He sees God's holiness for what it is. He sees the greatness of his guilt, and by God's command, Isaiah is forgiven. Isaiah's sin is atoned for. Now he can move on without dying. By God's command, Isaiah is forgiven. This is where the part that Jesus cites in Matthew 13 comes in. Remember, we started in Matthew 13, and Jesus said, I'll explain. Look at Isaiah 6. This is the part where Jesus cites um, what is going on uh, in his explanation of the parable. So look closely at verses 8 through 9 in Isaiah 6. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Last week I mentioned that salvation is never separate from the message of salvation. What that means is that if you have salvation, you also have a message of salvation to carry with you. God says a remarkable thing here. From His high above, lifted up, sovereign throne, in complete control, very much alive, very much active, very much in control, God says, who will I send? Who will go for us? God is the one, the sovereign God seated on the throne, high above and lifted up, worshiped by the seraphim. God is the one who decided to use men and women and even children to carry the message of Him and His holiness to the world. Don't see Him as having been knocked off of His throne and saying, I need help. He's seated. And He says, Who will go for us? Who will I send? So those who go are sent, particularly by God through the local church, but that's another message. And Isaiah's response is appropriately eager. Here am I. Send me. I'll go. You're holy. If you have a message, I want to proclaim it. Send me. I'll go. So what are we in Isaiah sent to proclaim? Look at verse 10. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. What a downer! You just saw the holiness of God, and you're overwhelmed with it, and now it's, go and proclaim this to the people. These people have set their their hearts against me. Go and proclaim this. This is very hard. Why give Isaiah such a hard message? Why does Jesus bring this up when the crowd gathers around? There's a crowd, Jesus. Please don't bring up the part about Isaiah being given the hard message. But that's what he cites. Look at verse 11. 
Then I said, how long, O Lord? Our response would likely be the same, and in many ways today is the same. How long, O Lord? Hopefully that turns into, come, Lord Jesus, come. I am so ready for you to be back. But how long, O Lord? As I would say, a a natural response. Verses 11 through 13. I said, how long? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people from far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy stump is its seed. God is essentially saying to Isaiah, things will go from bad to worse. Proclaim that message while they do. It will be largely rejected but you proclaim it. Isaiah, your hardest days are before you, but luckily you've seen my holiness. Thankfully, you've gazed upon the holiness of your great God. Your hardest days are before you, but proclaim that message. You tell people about me. Even when they reject you, you tell people about me, because not everyone will reject you. Most likely will. There are many who eagerly say, here am I, send me only to find themselves a very short way down the road saying, how much longer? Undoubtedly, I want to be very honest here, undoubtedly the hardest part about the explanation of the parables and why God uses parables and the hardest part about Isaiah 6 is the work of sharing the gospel that most people don't want to talk about. Sometimes we have to share the gospel so that it will be rejected. This is sobering. Please don't check out. Sometimes we have to share the truth about Jesus for the sake of someone's heart being hardened toward it. That's not your aim. Your aim is to be faithful to the call to share the gospel. It's good news. But not everyone says that's good news. So you have to share the gospel. We need to be honest here. I'll be very honest. When talking about evangelism, it feels like I'm supposed to leave out the way about the. I'm supposed to leave out the part about the way being narrow. I feel like if there was like a little handbook for pastors, it's like, hey, when you preach on evangelism, don't mention the narrow way. That will bum everybody out. It's as if we can only bring up the narrow way if we're talking about perseverance in hopes that none of us want to be outside of the narrow way. But it feels like, it feels like, and I'm so thankful that my emotions do not define my reality, but it feels like evangelistic efforts can only remain encouraging if I leave out the part about some people rejecting your message because the way's narrow. But the reality is that the wages of sin is death, and the one who sets the wage is God. The wages of sin is death, and the one who sets the wage is God. And everyone has rejected God. You have rejected God. I have rejected God. The wages of sin is death. The one who sets the wage is God. And we have all rejected God in our sin. But in Christ, God draws and even drags some back to himself. He redeems his people for his glory. He aims to have a people who will live in such a way that they will put his glory on display so that the earth can see his holiness. Think about how many people we have collectively shared the gospel with, just in your own life. 
How many people have you collectively shared the gospel with? Now look around the room and see how many faces are missing. Many. And even most will reject the message. But you don't know if they're rejecting it. You don't know if it's taking time. We're going to talk about that next week. You're not allowed to say, oh, they rejected it. You get to keep proclaiming that message. But the message must be shared. It's like an eye test. Without an eye test, you may not know the extent of your blindness. I can see all of you today. This is my first time to preach with glasses. You all feel a lot closer than you did last week. (laughs) But without an eye test, you can't know the extent of your blindness. That's kind of what the gospel does. Without a hearing test, you can't know the extent of your deafness. To be deaf or blind or hard-hearted toward the gospel, you must still have the gospel. Deafness, blindness, and hard-heartedness are indeed measured by the gospel, and you are the ones who God has equipped to go and share it. Now turn back to Matthew 13. I'm hoping that God is allowing divine reality to set in for us as to what evangelism is really like and how his sovereignty plays into it. This is what Jesus was getting at in Matthew 13. The whole world is full of people, all of whom need to hear the gospel. You're charged with it. Yet the whole world is full of people most of whom will reject the gospel. As a person who really likes to make people feel better, that's hard to share, but it's biblical. They will hear but never understand. They will see but never perceive. Look at verses 16 and 17 in Matthew 13. But blessed are your eyes, for they see. And your ears, for they hear. Do you, do, just before we go any further, please breathe deeply the blessing that you have if you hear and see the gospel. Please take in the enormity of the privilege it is for you to gaze upon the holiness of God. It's not common. It should overwhelm you. It should take your breath away. Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. If you see God's holiness and if you see your guilt forgiven in Christ, and if you see your sin atoned for in Christ, then you are ready, like Isaiah, who saw the same things. You're ready, like Isaiah, to proclaim this hard yet life-giving message. The mission field is not a rose garden, and you cannot persevere in something that doesn't exist. If we're really honest, we would like to say 
that we would be more okay with evangelism if we knew that at least the majority of the people would believe and be saved. We'd be more up for it if it wasn't ever a work of hardening, but it was always a work of bringing new life to someone who hears the message. If we're honest, we'd be more up for it. We must like Christ. We must take our cues from Christ or we will get this wrong. We must, like Christ, wish that none would perish, yet knowing that some will perish by the rejection of the message that we bring. That is the need for the message. Many find themselves overwhelmed with such a charge. Even if, as I sit here and talk about it, you might be thinking, I don't know about that. Many find themselves overwhelmed with such a charge. Isaiah found himself overwhelmed with such a charge. How long do I have to do that? I find it very overwhelming. Many burn out and do not persevere. Many cannot go long without some tangible way of quantifying their ministry. How many got saved? How many got saved? How many got saved? How many are in your church? How many are in your church? How many are in your church? You know how many documents are filled out with just that information? Many feel that their ministry is only worthwhile if it's quantifiable. So how was your week? Like as a pastor, I would love it if my brother, who's a salesman, could say, I could say, hey man, how was your week? He's like, I did like 30,000 in sales. And he's like, how's your week? I saved like four people. I would love it if it was like that. I could have something tangible to hold on to. People got saved. I felt better. We laughed. We cried. It was good. We had some barbecue. I would love it if it was like that. But ministry is not only worthwhile if it's quantifiable numerically. Many take it upon themselves to try to cause growth. Many try to keep from being bored with ministry by overwhelming themselves with growth. They'll write books about growth. They'll have conferences about growth. And then they will send you pamphlets in the mail about breaking growth barriers and things of that nature. All the while forgetting that only God gives the growth. Only God gives the growth. Many take it upon themselves to try to cause growth while forgetting that it is only God who gives the growth. And usually this focus on growth is at the expense of sowing. And usually it's at the expense of watering and at the expense of planting. So here's the encouragement we end with because this is a hard message. This is a hard text. Here's our encouragement. If you find yourself in the rut of how long, O Lord, if you hear this and you're like, oh, it hurts. If you find yourself in this rut looking up, how long, O Lord, I believe that there's really only one way to persevere. Gaze again upon the holiness of God. Please hear that. When the call on your life to go and make disciples gets hard because you don't have a lot of disciples, gaze again upon the holiness of God, please. When the narrow way is more frustrating than it is encouraging, gaze again upon the holiness of God. When you are tempted to rejoice only in numbers, and you begin to lean in the direction of counting heads rather than shepherding souls, 
gaze again upon the holiness of God. Climb in to Isaiah 6 with Isaiah. Go to Psalm 78 and look at how majestic and wonderful and holy God is. It is the holiness of God that allows you to spend and be spent gladly on the souls of God's children. Please hear that. In your homes, with your own children, in your friendships, in hard conversations, with your workmates, it is the holiness of God that allows you to spend and be spent gladly on the souls of God's children. They're not a project. It's not just an activity. You are to spend and be spent gladly on the souls of God's children, and it is the holiness of God that will allow you to persevere in it. God is sovereign. He is seated on his throne. Unshakable, unstoppable. That's what you are. We sung it this morning. He is seated on his throne. He's sovereign. And from his sovereign throne that is high above and lifted up, he calls out, who will I send? Who will go for us? And my hope is that we would respond with, here am I, send me. And my hope is that it it would be eager. My hope is that it would be a wholehearted response. But my hope is that it would be sober. That we would be sober-minded in what we're saying when we say, here am I, send me. Because the response of here am I, send me is way better than God will save whoever he wants. What's the point? That's unloving. God has children still to save. And he aims to do so by sending out common and fragile vessels like you and me to proclaim the gospel that they might hear and believe. There is not another way. Persevere in the hard work of evangelism by not losing sight of the holiness of your sovereign God. Let's pray. God, thank you. Lord, I want to confess in front of this body of believers that I feel very blessed because I get to be a part of a ministry where I see new life and growth and movement all the time. I meet new people. I see people having children. I see people adopting children. I see them raising them in the faith. I see them sowing the seed of the gospel. I get to observe that all the time, and I'm very, very humbled and thankful for that. Lord, I pray that we would have a sober mind in regards to the message we've been equipped to share. Knowing that many will reject it, I pray that we would not get bogged down. And I pray that you would keep us from getting bogged down by not losing sight of your holiness. Thank you, Lord, for being holy. Thank you for being holy. Thank you for calling us to holiness. My prayer is that you would use us in a mighty way as vessels of mercy as vessels who desire that people would not get what they deserve, but that they would have forgiveness in Christ, that their guilt would be taken away, that their sin would be atoned for. God, I desire that you would use us as vessels of mercy poured out as you see fit so that we can put your glory on display as you see fit.
There is no possible way for us to have understanding, for us to have eyes that see, for us to have ears that hear, for us to have hearts that are not dull and hardened without gazing upon your holiness regularly, daily. Overwhelm us with your holiness. Overwhelm us with the fact that when we sing, when we take the Lord's Supper, we do so in the presence of a holy God who is sovereign and high above and lifted up and present. Lord, I pray that that you would be glorified. That happens in Jesus, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, every one, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation... Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide. Divide him 
a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. Will you bow with me? And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Father, this morning, I pray that we would be in awe of your glory. Your holiness, Father, you are set apart and you are far, far high and above us and lifted up. Father, I pray for eyes to see that. And Father, this morning, as the body of Christ, your church, Father, we offer this supper as an act of worship in remembrance of your son, stricken and wounded for our transgressions. Knowing, Father, that he is our provision, it is a finished work, and we have an awesome privilege to share that. So, Father, we, we ask that you receive this offering of worship. We thank you for Christ. And we do this in remembrance of him. Amen.
I would encourage you to tell people about Jesus, especially in response to a message like that. Um, but I want to make sure that we're not unloving. Don't be unloving. Um, one guy said it's very frivolous to boast of what you know about God when love is wanting. Our message is not, hey, most of y'all are going to reject this. That's not the gospel message. The gospel message is God is holy. You are a sinner. In Christ, you can be reconciled to God. There is life in Christ. That's your message you proclaim. So we're not unloving in our proclamation. And it's not more loving to alter the message. So I encourage y'all to persevere in that by not taking your eyes off of the holiness of God. Let's pray. All glory, honor, power is yours. Lord, the earth is full of your glory. Thank you for not keeping your holiness a secret. Please use us in response to that as you see fit. Lord, I do pray that you would draw many. I do pray that my prayer is that all of Greenville would turn and be saved, that they would accept the forgiveness that is offered to them in Christ, and I pray that it would be rightly offered. I pray for you to do something mighty. I'm thankful for Philippians, where it says, let our request be made known. But if we, in sharing the gospel, don't get the results that we might hope for, I pray what it also says in Philippians, that we would have peace that exceeds understanding, because our eyes are fixed on the holiness of God. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all have a good day.